lesson is called Loaded Questions Supplied. It is the last study in the five books. We come now to the Lord's fourth challenge question of Tuesday of the Passion Week. And it is again now we're going to find the Pharisees who step to the plate. They step forward in yet one more attempt to discredit Jesus before the, the great Passover multitudes. Now the Pharisees must have had some mixed feelings when they heard how Jesus had put the Sadducees to silence regarding that resurrection situation, the resurrection question. On the one hand, the Pharisees had to be absolutely elated about his answer to them, which came straight from the Pentateuch, straight from the, the, the books of Moses, and also straight from the mouth of God himself, right? When God was speaking at the burning bush and he said, I am the God of Abraham, not I was, I am. Therefore, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still living, which proves the resurrection and the afterlife. Well, when the Pharisees heard that answer, you know they were excited because finally it put, it put the Sadducees' error to rest. Their denial of res- resurrection and an afterlife. And then what had Jesus thrown in for good measure? What else that, did they not believe in? Angels. And remember how he threw that in (laughs) as an additional bonus, you know, because he spoke about angels too. So the Pharisees were probably saying, ha ha. And so on the one hand, they're very pleased with how Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. But yet on the other hand, the Pharisees must have been a little bit frustrated that yet another attempt to find a blemish in Jesus had been foiled. And foiled badly because the multitudes, think about this, their interest in Jesus, instead of having been discredited and instead of succeeding in turning the multitudes away from him, the multitudes are growing in their interest and in their love in Jesus after each one of these questions. You know, initially when they when he answered that first challenge question to his authority, it says that the, the, the people perceived that he was a prophet. And then after he answered the second question from the, the, that one was from the Pharisees about the poll tax, paying Caesar the denarius, when he said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's, it said that the multitudes marveled at his answer. But when he answered the third question, the one by the Sadducees about resurrection, we are told that they were astonished at his his doctrine. So they went from perceiving him to be a prophet, to being mar- marveling over him, to um, being astonished at his doctrine. So instead of drawing the crowds away from Jesus, which was their motive, the religious rulers are succeeding in drawing the crowd to Jesus. They're loving him more and more. So the Pharisees are getting desperate. So what they do is they they go. They get together in yet another undercover powwow session to give it one more try. This was their chance now to try to succeed where those haughty Sadducees had failed. And although they had been embarrassingly unsuccessful on their own last try with him, which was with that poll tax question, Yet they might have, as they got together, the Pharisees might have reasoned together with one another that the only reason they had failed on that attempt was because they sent their trainees instead of going themselves. Who had they sent? They sent their, the young, their young disciples along with a group of Herodians. And so they might have said, well, you know, that failed because we sent those young guys and they're just not as experienced in debating 
one like Jesus. So what we need to do is we need to send someone with more experience, someone more knowledgeable with regard to the scriptures and someone better at debating. And so they sent one of their most learned and scholarly lawyers. They apparently, and that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, they apparently figured that if anyone could be a match for Jesus, it was this particular scriptural scholar. He must have been really way up there in his knowledge of the scripture. Therefore, in their final attempt to tempt Jesus by the words of his answer, they used a theologically loaded question. Now, we've already seen them use a politically loaded question with the poll tax. The Sadducees tried to use a doctrinally loaded question with the resurrection, and now they're going to try to trip him up with a theologically loaded question. And it was a question that was the most popular priority debating question of that day, especially among the scribes and the Pharisees. What was the question? Here it is. What is the greatest commandment? That's the question. And this question, along with, of course, the Lord's answer, is what we're going to look at in the first part of our lesson today, which I have entitled the popular priority question answered, because Jesus, of course, answers it. So let's look at it in Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. All right, look at, first of all, verse 33. That's when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. That's after they heard his answer about the resurrection. And then it goes on, verse 34, it says, But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer or a scribe, we're told he's a scribe over in Mark's parallel account. One of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, now, before he says this, I want to tell you that in Mark's account, first of all, Jesus said, uh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That's called the Shema. We'll talk about that later. And then he went on to say this, which what we read here in Matthew. After he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Then he said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second, now the lawyer hadn't asked for the second greatest, had he? But the Lord always goes the extra mile, doesn't he? He threw in angels and now he throws in the second great commandment. And he says, The second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And then over in Mark, it tells us, he went on to also say, There is none other commandment greater than these. Okay. The Lord had just silenced the Sadducees, right? The most powerful Jewish sect of men in Israel. And the Greek word, if you look at verse 34, the Greek word for silence is phimu, which literally means to muzzle, to forcefully restrict the opening of the mouth. Like it says in scripture, you know, you muzzle an ox. 
you know, force the mouth shut. We have seen this same word used back in Mark 1.25 when Jesus silenced a demon. He actually muzzled the demon. The demon was not able to open his mouth and speak anymore. And we also saw this same Greek word used in Mark 4.39. Remember this, when Jesus stood up in a boat during a, a storm on the Sea of Galilee, and what did he say? Peace be, literally, Peace be muzzled. That's what he literally said. And we surmised because of that, that that was a satanically produced storm. Satan was trying to drown the Lord and all of his disciples. So it's the same word. The Lord's answer about resurrection from God himself at the burning bush, when God said, I am the God of Abraham. Abraham is very much still alive. I'm not, I wasn't. I, you know, not I was the God of Abraham. I am the God of Abraham, not of a bunch of bones decaying in the ground. When the, when the Lord answered that question, he had rendered the Sadducees absolutely speechless. They were as verbally incapacitated as that improperly dressed intruder at the wedding banquet as he stood caught in his own willful sin before the king. Remember him back in Matthew twenty-two twelve. Here they had come. Those Sadducees had come. Remember we talked about the word come? They had come in such arrogant assurance to Jesus with their question and their hypothetical situation about that woman with seven husbands, thinking that before they were through with Jesus, he was going to look like an utter fool. But he defeated them so marvelously, so quickly, and so irrefutably with Mosaic Scripture, which was the only thing they would allow him to use because the only books in the Bible they believed were inspired, that they never again, do you know this? The Sadducees never, ever again engaged Jesus Christ in a debate of any kind, not even in a discussion of any kind. They were muzzled. They were put to silence. But instead, you know what they resorted to? Instead of trying to debate with him, they resorted to using even more wicked methods. Since they knew they couldn't find a blemish of any kind on him to discredit him publicly, they resorted to evil private matters or methods. They ended up by bribing Judas Iscariot to betray him. They arrested the Lord in the dark of the night when, of course, there were no people around, no crowds. And they used false witnesses in a very illegal trial in order to arrest him. But that, so that's the end of the Sadducees as far as, you know, trying to find a blemish on Jesus. But the Pharisees haven't given up yet. The Pharisees are not finished, at least at this point. And they, they felt it mandatory to discredit Jesus before the, pe- before the people publicly in order to break his hold, his growing hold over them, because the people are getting more and more excited about Jesus. So when they heard about the public muzzling of the Sadducees, uh, which you know had to give them a great moment of glee. Can't you just see the Pharisees over there going, Yes! <laughs> when they heard about that, they again huddled together to plan and to plot what they would do. All the previous three challenges to Jesus had come from groups of men, right? First of all, there was that Sanhedrin delegation. Then there was the Pharisees' disciples with the Herodians. And then there were the Sadducees, all groups of men. So apparently in this little huddle session, they thought, well, why not 
why not use a different approach and send just one man, one man who was the most brilliant and versed in law that they knew of, apparently, a nomikos, a lawyer. The Greek word for lawyer is nomikos. So next time you go to see your lawyer, you can call him a nomikos and see what, how he responds to that. <laughs> but uh, lawyers were professional laymen who studied and taught and interpreted and dealt with the practical questions of the Jewish law. They were, lawyers were a special group within the profession commonly called scribes. So you have scribes, okay? And then under scribes, you have lawyers. So if you were a scribe, you could also be a lawyer. This man was both. But if you were, a, I mean, if you were a lawyer, you had to be a scribe. But if you were a scribe, you didn't necessarily have to be a lawyer. Are you following me? But this man was both. <laughs> and he was apparently very well known. And he was very, very studied in the scripture. And so they were going to send him. Um, and they thought that this would do it. And they were going to send him with this question about the great commandment. But you know what? There was something about this particular man, this brilliant lawyer, that the others did not know or maybe they wouldn't have used him. His heart, you see, his heart had been touched by the wisdom of the words of Jesus Christ. And there are several indications we have in the scripture to verify this, that his heart had been moved. First of all, over in Mark 12, 28, it tells us that the man was present when Jesus was reasoning together with the Sadducees you know, about the resurrection question. This scribe had been there. He had heard that entire conversation. And we are told in Mark 12, 28, that he perceived, this man perceived, that Jesus had answered them well. He was probably also one of the scribes that Luke tells us about in Luke 20, 39, who actually went to Jesus after Jesus had defeated the Sadducees and actually said to him, Master, thou hast well said. Secondly, another indication that this man's heart had been touched by the words of Jesus Christ is that at the conclusion of his discussion with Jesus that we're going to look at today about the great commandment, this man, this scribe, said to Jesus, no, excuse me, the other way around. Jesus said to this man, thou art not far from the kingdom of God. Now, you don't see that in Matthew. We'll be over in Mark in a little while, so you'll, you'll see it in Mark. It's in Mark twelve thirty four. The man was apparently in deep thought about Christ, who is the one way into the kingdom of God. So there was something about about this man, something that he saw in Jesus and in Jesus's words that struck a deep chord within his soul. Now, you have to go back and forth with this guy. We have to admit that, yes, at first he, he was willing to be used by the Pharisees as their tool to do what? Try to tempt Jesus. And that's, that's not good because thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And uh, so he was willing to be used as a tool. But on the other side, um, he was honest and humble enough in his own heart to be open to hear what the Lord said in response to his question. So there was an element of virtue in this man, 
even though he was not completely straightforward initially. The duplicity of this man was mixed with a measure of sincere interest. And we have to admit that there, he was definitely a cut above his peers when it came to humility and sincerity and uh, honesty. Where he wound up, I don't know. Uh, maybe we'll see him in heaven, and I hope that we will, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But the scripture doesn't tell us. He was not far from the kingdom. I hope and pray he got into the kingdom. So he asked his question of Jesus, and it wasn't a new question. It wasn't a new question. It was one that the scribes and Pharisees had been debating for centuries. Which is the great commandment? Mark says, which is the first commandment? Now, this is not speaking of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are also known. Who, who knows the other word for the Ten Commandments? De- Decalogue. Decalogue. It's not speaking of the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. You know where they get... Remember last week we talked about the Pentateuch. The name comes from Pende, which in Greek is five. And it's the five, first five books of Moses. That's why it's called the Pentateuch. Well, the Decalogue is for ten because in Greek... Deca is ten. Ena, dia, tria, tessera, pendi. There's your pendi. Exi, epta, octo, enya, deca. I just had to show you I could count to ten in Greek. Deca, decalogue. Plus, I'm a teacher, and I want you to learn that another name for the Ten Commandments is the deca. All right, so they're not asking which is the greatest of the Ten Commandments. What their question is, is which is the greatest commandment found in the, the Pentateuch? The laws, the law of Moses. And uh, over the years, the rabbis, these guys, you can't help but love them. I mean, they really took the scripture seriously. <laughs> they, they, they had gathered together all the Pentateuch and counted and found out that there were 613 commandments in the books of Moses, in the law. 613, which just happens to be, very interestingly, the exact number of Hebrew letters in the Decalogue. Do you think that's just coincidence? You know, the, the scribes and the rabbis and the Pharisees, they were always interested in every little word of Scripture and every little number. They knew numbers were important. After all, there's a book in the Bible named Numbers, right? Numbers are important. So I'm trying to defend myself because, you know, I love numbers. But there's actually one law in the books of Moses for every Hebrew letter in the Decalogue. And I don't think that that is just coincidence. Anyway, so what the, fair, what the uh, rabbis did is they took the 613 laws in, found in the, in the Pentateuch and they came up with 248 positive laws, which means 248 do's. And 365 do-nots, one for every day of the year, do-not. So 248 positives and and 365 negatives. Now, no person, of course, could ever possibly even remember all these do's and do-nots, much less keep them. So the question was often asked and discussed, which one or which ones of these laws must absolutely be obeyed? In other words, which ones should people major on? They figured that if they were strict about obeying the important laws, then God would, you know, he would just kind of let them slide by when they neglected the less important laws. So the rabbis took the 613 laws and divided them even further. They came up with heavy 
positive laws, which means important, positive laws, do's, and light, meaning unimportant, positive laws, as well as heavy, negative laws, and light, negative laws. And then they had to decide where every one of those laws ranked within those four categories so that they had... Here we go. I have to take a deep breath. So they had very, very heavy negative laws, very heavy negative laws, heavy negative laws, light negative laws, very light negative laws, and very, very light negative laws. And they had very, very heavy positive laws, very heavy positive laws, heavy positive laws, light positive laws, very light positive laws, and very, very light positive laws. So their thinking was that if one obeyed all the very, very heavy laws both positive and negative, that God would not be upset when they failed to obey the very, very light and very light positive and negative laws. Did you get that? I lost one girl yesterday. After that, she said her head was just dizzy the whole rest. (laughs) I just did that to be funny, but that's actually what they did. That is actually what they did. They ranked every one of the 613 laws into one of those categories. Yeah, we, we do basically the same thing. But the whole problem, the whole problem with this idea of counting some of God's laws as important and others as not so important, you know what the problem with that is? It's stated by James in the book of James. James 2.10 says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, one little, little, light negative law, I just ate a fruit off the tree. God <laughs> is guilty of all. I've given you this illustration before, but what if, a, what if a person lived to be 99 and a half years old and never, ever committed a sin? Never even a bad thought. I mean, that's a hypothetical situation because it would never happen. But let's say it could happen. And then on her deathbed, she gets a bad thought. And she curses her nurse. She just blew it. <laughs> she just blew it. That just goes to show you why we need Jesus so badly, right? Because none of us can ever keep the whole law. If we keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, we're guilty as if we broke all the laws. All of God's laws are important in that they are equally important in condemning the one who commits them. A law is only heavier or more important or greater or, or uh, first when it includes and embraces other laws. And you'll get that because that's what Jesus teaches in his answer. All right? We'll, we'll talk about that. Actually, the scribes and Pharisees had gotten their whole system turned upside down. They're the ones who made up this little system of heavies, positives, negatives, lights, etc. And yet they confused and turned around the whole, the whole system. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus condemns them of in the next chapter. I think we start our Life of Christ 6 books on the denunciation discourse. I'm not sure. Maybe we don't. But Matthew 23 is the denunciation discourse where he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, over and over again. One of the things he woes them about is he says this, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye pay, pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. You know, you're so diligent about the light little things, even paying a tenth of your garden herbs, and yet you have omitted the weightier matters of the law. You're out there counting, you know, nine 
cumin for me and one for God. <laughs> and yet you omit mat- the weightier matters such as judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye have done, and not to leave the other undone. You know, you know but the weightier you should have done, but still do the little, the little ones too. And he calls them hypocrites. Because the Pharisees, now, because they were trying to turn the Passover crowds against Jesus, we ask ourselves, what is their thinking? And having this lawyer, this intelligent lawyer, ask the question about the great commandment, which in other words would be this. Here, here would be his question. What is the very, very heavy positive law of all the 613 commandments given by Moses? That's what he's asking Jesus, essentially. Well, what's their thinking? Why are they coming to him with this particular question? How is this going to turn the crowds away from him? How is this going to discredit Jesus? Well, their thinking is this. Whatever Jesus answered to this question would make him very unpopular with a large segment of the Jewish people because, you see, the people were divided about the priority commandment. Some of the Jewish people believed that the most important commandment in the law of Moses had to do with circumcision. Others believed that the the most important commandment was with regard to the law of offerings and sacrifices. Others felt it had to do with honoring the Sabbath. You know how some of them got really uptight about the Sabbath. And yet others said that it was the wearing of the phylacteries on the foreheads of of the men when they prayed. And I'll talk more about that in a little bit. But they were divided, and there were other ones, too. So the people were very divided. So, so no matter what Jesus said, let's say he came up and said, well, it's definitely the law of the sacrifices. Then he would offend everybody else, those who believed it was the circumcision or, or um, the Sabbath or the phylacteries or something else. And they would all turn from, they would be mad at him for giving that particular answer. Are you following me? So this is their, their little hope. And maybe... Maybe that they were hoping he would come up with his own opinion on the matter and uh, he would just disturb everybody. He would lose all of their following. Maybe he would even come up with a new commandment of his own that they could then use to accuse him of trying to place himself even higher than Moses, who they esteemed as the supreme figure of the Bible. Do you know all the Jews said that Moses was the supreme figure in the Bible? And you know why? Not only the Samaritans and the Sadducees, but all of the Jews said Moses was it. And the reason for that is not only because he delivered them from their bondage in Egypt, but it was because he had faced, he had spoken to God face to face. And he had received directly from God the uh, two stone tablets of the law. So they would love for Jesus to say something publicly that would indicate that he thought his teaching was more important than even that of Moses. If he contradicted Moses, they could accuse him of heresy. For to contradict Moses and the God-given law was equivalent to, to contradicting God himself. Most of all, the Pharisees were probably hoping that Jesus would say something like, The greatest commandment is to believe on me and be saved. And then what would they do if he said that? Accuse him of blasphemy and stone him to death. So this, this is their little plot. And his unhesitating answer surprised them. Now, when I read this initially, it didn't surprise me. I guess I'm coming from, you know, 
we're Christians and we have hindsight and we've studied the Bible. And so when he said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God, yeah, I thought, yeah, of course that's the greatest commandment. Love the, God, love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That didn't really surprise me. But when the Jews heard him answer with that answer, it was powerful. It was an eye-opener to those steeped in man-made religion because he shows that the essence of the believer's duty is moral, not ceremonial. You know, they're all hung up on, oh, the ceremonial aspects like circumcision and the Sabbath and the, and the sacrifices and the phylacteries. And he's saying, no, your primary responsibility is moral, love, love. And his answer was in total accord, in total agreement with both the Mosaic law, right? Because it came right from Deuteronomy. You're going to be turning there in a minute. So if you want to get yourself situated in Deuteronomy chapter 6, came right from the Mosaic law and also um, an ancient Jewish custom based on that law in Deuteronomy chapter 6, which again involves the phylacteries that were worn by Jewish men on their foreheads and their left arms during prayer. What did Jesus say? Well, after he said the Shema over in Mark, you know, Oh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Then he went on and he said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. Notice the word thy means your God. That makes it personal, right? It doesn't, it's not a distant relationship. The word thy indicates that one should have, uh, should love God as your very own God. Personal relationship with God. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This, he said, is the first and great commandment. In other words, love God personally with all of your being. You know, the heart, when it speaks of the heart there, the heart is the seat of man's affection. And, and his emotions and his will. The soul, which in the Greek is psyche, is the self-conscious life of man. It's what makes us different from the animal world and from uh, vegetation. It's the essence of man that distinguishes us. It's our, our consciousness, our self-consciousness, that we're aware of ourself. I don't guess animals are even aware of themselves. They don't have a self-conscious and they can't think about who created them. They can't think about God. And then the, um, the mind is the seat of reasoning and understanding. It's the rational faculties. We're to, we're to love God with all of our being. The word all is used how many times? Three times. Um, we're to love with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind. And the, the word is repeated so that it adds strength. We're to love God with all our strength. In addition... We are to love the Lord our God with every part of our being and with the fullest of that part of our being. We're to love him with heart, soul, mind, strength, possessions, obedience, service, everything. To love him, to love God, is not to just have warm, fuzzy feelings about God. Because true agape love, which you've all heard of, you know, agape love is God's kind of love. It's unconditional love. It's not the same as the world's kind of love. Agape love, which in Hebrew, the comp... Comparable in Hebrew is the word aheb, A-H-E-B. We all know the Greek word agape, but how many of us know the Hebrew word for that kind of love? It's aheb. You should know that. A-H-E-B, aheb, is agape love. It involves the will as well as the heart, the intellect as well as the emotions. You know, to love God is very rational and logical. 
It's not anything that you just have to step out in blind faith, you know, like stepping off a cliff. It's very logical. It's, it's, to me, it's the most logical thing of all. It's a lot more logical than not believing in God. But we're to love him with every part of our being. And where there is love like this, what will naturally follow? Obedience. If you love someone, you obey them and you want to serve them. So again, the Lord's answer comes directly from Moses, just as his resurrection answer came from Moses. In fact, it is what we call, or what the Jews call, part of the Shema. Have you ever heard of the Shema? If you met a Jewish person, they would definitely know what you're talking about if you said the Shema. All Jews say the Shema twice a a day, or at least religious Jews. Secular Jews probably don't. But the Shema comes straight. It's a statement of faith that the Jews, especially of Jesus' day, faithfully recited twice a day. It's taken from, you're in Deuteronomy 6, right? All right, it's taken from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, and also Deuteronomy 11, 13, which by far are the most familiar and the most quoted passages of Scripture in all of Judaism. Now, the word Shema, you could actually put a little parenthesis mark around Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 and say the Shema. Put that in, it's S-H-E-M-A. I wrote that in my Bible. That's the Shema. I've met Jewish people and I've said, to them, hear, O Israel, our Lord God is one Lord. And you get a big smile from them. They're so pleased that you know that. Um, the, it, the, the term Shema comes from the fact that Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. And that's the first word of the Shema is hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And then what does it go on to say? And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. So he was just quoting from... Moses, from what all Jews recited twice a day, the Shema. In fact, these these two verses in Deuteronomy were two of the four scripture passages that were copied by the Jewish people onto little small pieces of paper and put into small boxes called phylacteries that the Jewish men wore on their heads, tied with a rope, a little box on their head, and they put those four scripture, two of them from the, the Shema, in, in those boxes and wore them on their heads and also on their gotta get my left arm, on their left arms when they went to prayer. Have you ever seen Jewish men praying with the phylacteries on their heads? How many of you have? I have. I have. I've, I've seen them on airplanes. I've seen them on, uh, over in Israel. It's called a phylactery. And um, this, this idea was devised by the Jews because they took Deuteronomy 6, 8, look down a few more verses, they took it literally, where God said, Thou shalt bind them, the them is referring to the words of the Shema, Thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. So, you know, God was speaking, you know, spiritually here that you should no matter what you do always remember with whatever you do with your hand remember that you're to love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength keep that always before you is what he was saying and so they thought well he means to keep it always before us so we'll put it right there And and that's okay. I mean, I don't have a big problem with it. It certainly reminded them to love the Lord thy God with all. And, you know, when my kids were little and they were still in the home, I put verses in front of them. I had them on the refrigerator. I had them on the walls. I I have a plaque right there on my front door and a doormat. You know, it's to constantly remind us to love the Lord thy God 
And so I don't have a big problem with that, but that's where they got the idea of the phylacteries. In fact, they took the verses of the Shema and put them in boxes called mezuzahs and also attached them to the doors of their houses, the Jewish doors, to serve as a constant reminder to love God wholeheartedly. In fact, in the next chapter, again, I talked about this already, but in Matthew 23, the denunciation discourse, Jesus rebukes the scribes and Pharisees for making such an outward show by, because you know what they did? They're such hypocrites. They didn't love the Lord thy God with all their heart, heart, soul, and mind strength, but they wanted everybody to think how pious they were and how much they did love him, so they made extra big phylacteries. <laughs> and they had these giant boxes attached to their heads, so everybody look at them, oh, aren't they pious? <laughs> and so he reprimands them about that in the denunciation uh, discourse. So anyway, to the great dismay of the Pharisees, although the lawyer... The lawyer, the scribe, as we will see, appreciated the Lord's response here, quoting from the Shema. But to the great dismay of the Pharisees, Jesus did not say something to contradict Moses at all in his answer. He merely reminded everyone listening that the great priority commandment, the first and great commandment of all the 613, was not honoring the Sabbath. It wasn't circumcision. It wasn't the law of the sacrifices and certainly wasn't the wearing of phylacteries. But it was the very one contained within those phylacteries. And one they all recited faithfully twice a day. Love God to the very core of your being. It seems like it should have been a given with all of them, doesn't it? Why would they say the Sabbath or circumcision when it was right there something they recited every day? Love him, love God, with the unconditional, intelligent, purposed, committed, act of the will, love with which he loves you. God loves with his whole being, and that's what he expects in return. Now, of course, we're not able to do that, are we? No one can ever say they love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. I mean, to say so would be such pride, it's unbelievable. But there was one who did love God with that kind of love, and who was he? Jesus Christ, and that's why we need his righteousness imputed to us. But the Lord Jesus was, uh, he was always reprimanding the scribes and the Pharisees for pretending to love God, um, pretending to love God externally only and verbally, but inwardly having absolutely no love for him at all, really. We know they didn't have any love for him because uh, remember what Jesus said in John eight forty two. He said, if God were your father, ye would love me. He said, if God really was your father and if you really did love him with all your heart, soul, strength and mind, you would know me and you would love me because you would recognize the father in me. They didn't love Jesus in whom was the fullness of the Godhead dwelling bodily they didn't love him he was god's love incarnate and what did they do they hated him and they were trying to murder him they wanted to murder him he alone loved god with all his heart soul mind and strength and but they hated him and they wanted to murder him and to definitely want to murder somebody is against one of the commandments i think it's a heavy 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 (laughs) negative do not kill thou shall not kill And so that was their proof of their lack of love for God and that they wanted to to kill God's son. Having a lot going on today in the fires, aren't we? So to say we love God is one thing. You know, anybody can stand up and say, I love God, right? Any one of us can stand up and say that. 
I love God. But the proof of that love is demonstrated by our actions toward others. To just say that we love God is abstract. It can't be seen or understood standing by itself. There has to be a demonstration, you know, obedience, an act of something done for love to be seen and understood. How did God demonstrate? You know, if God just said, I love the world, and that was it, and he never demonstrated that love, would that help us? How did God demonstrate his love for the world? He gave his only begotten son. So love for God cannot be divorced from love for one's neighbor. And remember what we learned in the Good Samaritan parable, that who's our neighbor? Anyone. Anyone out there who has a need that we can fulfill, not just our next-door neighbor. So even though the scribe had not asked for the two greatest commandments, Jesus went that extra mile, and next he quotes from Leviticus 19.18, which again is Mosaic, and he says, and the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And he said, after that, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You see, if a person has a right vertical relationship with God, if he loves God properly, all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, he's going to have a right horizontal relationship with his fellow man. A profession of love for God can always be suspect if if that love is not directed toward one's fellow man. If you go out and you commit adultery with someone against, you know, that's against your fellow man. Or if you murder your fellow man, you covet your fellow man or um, falsely witness against your fellow man. What is that showing? You don't have a right vertical relationship with God. You do not love God with your all your heart, soul, mind, and strength because if you did, you would understand that he loves your fellow man as much as he loves you. He has created the fellow man in his image just as much as he created you in his image and you wouldn't hurt, hurt somebody else. <clears throat> Loving our neighbor is what demonstrates and proves our love for God. What does it say in 1 John four twenty and 21? If a man say he loves God and hates his brother, what is he? He's a liar, right? If a man, you can't sit on your father's lap and hug him and tell him you love him and be sticking your tongue out at your brother. (laughs) I like that example. But uh, you're a liar if you say you love God and you hate your brother. And he goes on and says in 1 John, And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God loves his brother also. The essence of a true relationship with God is to love and to serve others. For this is the will of God. That's how he wants us to demonstrate our love toward him, is to love and to serve our fellow man. Love imprisoned within the soul is meaningless. If you say you love, but you just sit in your own house and don't ever demonstrate your love, just be like God sitting up there in heaven saying he loves all of us and never did anything about it. If you just sit in your house and you never serve others and you never help others and you, you just keep all your love boxed up inside of you, oh, I love, I love people, oh, I love people so much, but you never go outside and do anything for anybody, that's meaningless, isn't it? That love doesn't benefit anyone. It doesn't even benefit you. 
Love must be expressed through words and by actions that back up those words. All other commandments will be fulfilled to the measure that these two great commandments are filled. That's what makes them the greatest, is that they embrace all the others. You know, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength embraces the first five commandments of the Decalogue, doesn't it? Thou shalt no have no other gods before you, etc. And the, the uh, love your neighbor as yourself embraces the second five of the Decalogue. Thou shalt not commit murder. I don't know them in heart, by heart. I should have memorized them when I was a child like some of you had the advantage to do, but <laughs> I didn't. But anyway, that's what makes these first two great is that they embrace the whole Old Testament scripture. And I can say that because Jesus said on these two commandments hangs all the, <clears throat> what's it say, all the uh, law and the prophets. <laughs> so upon these two hang all that God ever said or did. The entire scripture hangs on these two commandments, which if you boil them down, boil down to one word, what would that word be? Love. Love God, love your neighbor. And that's, that's exactly what Romans 13.10 says. Love is the fulfilling of the law. He boiled it all down to one word, love. Agape, aheb kind of love. So let's go back to the lawyer and see how he responded to this uh, answer. So to do this, I want you to flip over to do this. You're in Deuteronomy, right? Would you go to Mark 12? And let's look at verses 32 to 34 and see the scribe's response. Mark 12, verse 32. And the scribe said unto him, Well, master, thou hast said the truth. For there is one God, and there is none other but he. Now there he's repeating the first part of the Shema, which Jesus, look at verse 29. See, I told you Jesus said this before he said, Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. See, in verse 29, Jesus said, The first of all commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That's the Shema. And this is what the scribe repeated to him when he said, Well, Master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God and there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the soul and with all the strength and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. That was a good answer from the scribe. And Jesus, when he saw that he answered discreetly, which I'll explain that word in a minute. Jesus said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And then it says, And no man after that durst ask him any question. The lawyer's response revealed that he was an open-minded inquirer, one who was not afraid to accept the truth, even if it came from the very one all his peers hated. Before all of them, now they're all standing around, all the Pharisees who had put him up to this, they're standing there. He doesn't hesitate to commend the Lord. He understood, you see, what many of his peers, his religious peers, did not. 
which was that there was a whole lot more to Judaism than merely offerings and sacrifices and the keeping of laws and traditions and um, circumcision and the Sabbath day and the feast days, etc., etc. He understood that what Jesus had said about loving God and loving one's neighbor as himself are the great laws that embrace all others. The Lord saw, and we read in verse 34, that the man had answered him discreetly. And when I read that, I thought, well, it sounds like the man answered him privately and whispered this to him. But that's not what the Greek word means. It's a Greek adverb, which is only used this one place in the entire New Testament. And it's a word that means that there was intelligence displayed in the lawyer's answer. He had replied in the manner of a person who possessed a mind of his own. Isn't it good to possess a mind of your own and not just to be wishy-washy and and repeat, be a parrot and repeat what others have told you? He didn't care about peer pressure. He had a mind of his own, and he listened carefully to what Jesus said, and he understood what Jesus had said. He had completely comprehended the significance of Jesus' answer about the two great commandments. And, uh, <clears throat> and the Lord then complimented the man in a way that was really also an appeal It was almost like an invitation. Now, remember, Jesus is finished inviting Israel as a nation to himself. But he is still making appeals and invitations to individuals. And that is what he does with this scribe when he says, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. You see, the man's realization of the priority issue of love had placed him spiritually near the kingdom of God. Now, he had come a long way for a lawyer being used by the Lord's worst enemies, the Pharisees, to tempt Jesus. He'd come a long way in just a few, you know, just in a few minutes here listening to Jesus. But we can't get too excited about him because not far from is still not in, is it? It isn't going to do anybody any good to, to die and not be far from the kingdom of God if they're not actually in. Oh, please, make sure that's none of you. You know, some people can be right there, right at the door, but if they don't step in and don't, you know, receive Christ, they don't get into the kingdom. To not, to be far from, not far from, means that this young, this man, I don't know if he's young, this man had to still go a little bit further and accept the person of him who is the kingdom of God. The man really needed to understand who it was he was speaking to, like that Samaritan woman at the well. Now, whether he ever did or not, only eternity will reveal. But I would like to trust that the Lord's compliment and the Lord's invitation, his appeal to this man, did not go wasted. And I would also like to think that it was for this scribe in particular that the Lord Jesus went on now to take his turn at asking a question. After all, he's been bombarded with questions, all, and it's finally his turn. <laughs> and what he asks is the most pertinent personal question of all time and eternity. And we'll look at that in a second. If we uh, look back at the lawyer's answer to Jesus in Mark 12, 32, 
we find, as I mentioned when I was reading it, that after he commended the Lord for his answer, for the Lord's answer, he went on to restate the first part of the Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4, which Jesus had recited over in Mark 12.29. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You see, the, law, the lawyer was emphasizing the oneness of God in verse 32 when he said, Well, Master, thou hast said the truth. That's his commendation. And then he said, For there is one God, and there is none other but he. You see, I think the reason the lawyer said this first is that he was emphasizing this. This is where he had a problem with Jesus. He liked everything else about Jesus. He loved his words of wisdom. But this is where he had a big hang-up with Jesus. In effect, what he was saying to the Lord was this. Yes, you answered my question about the great heavy commandment very well. What you have said is true, for we should love God wholeheartedly, and we should love our neighbors as ourselves. However, God alone is God, and he alone is worthy of our love and our worship and our obedience. You yourself, Jesus, just quoted from the Shema. You know that the Lord our God is one Lord. So why then do you claim Equality with God, calling him your father. God is one, so you cannot possibly be God. That's his big hang-up. And it was the hang- big hang-up of all the Jewish people, wasn't it? It's the big hang-up of most people in the world. This issue of the oneness of God and the dilemma of the Messiah also being God is therefore what Jesus next addressed with his question. It's very, very important that we understand what he says next. Now, the Pharisees, the Pharisees were more perplexed than ever as to what they could do to discredit and eliminate Jesus because, again, he had, he had foiled their attempt to trick him to give an inappropriate answer to this greatest command, commandment question. He not only gave a great answer, Uh, one that they all had to agree with. Nobody could disagree with his answer because it's one they wore on their foreheads and recited twice a day. You know, it was so obvious. It was like, oh, yeah, I can't see the forest through the trees. Of course, there it is. (laughs) One they had on their doors every time they walked in and out of their door. So they couldn't disagree with his answer, but they had a bigger problem in that. um, I mean, that was a big problem, but then he also gave them a problem because here he was seemingly about to win their most brilliant man that they had on their side, the lawyer. The lawyer was basically looking like he was going over to Jesus' side. So um, things were looking really desperate for the Pharisees, and they again gathered themselves together. You'll see that when I go back to Matthew in a minute. But they again gathered. How many times have these guys had little (laughs) powwows? But they again get themselves together to try to decide what they would do next. But after irrefutably answering four successive spring-loaded questions, it was now Jesus' turn. So while they're in the middle of their little powwow, he pops his question on them. And he asks them, not a doctrinally loaded question, not a uh, politically loaded question, not a theologically loaded question, but an eternally loaded question. 
What think ye? Here's his question in verse 34. Did I read it? No. Let me read verse 30. And when Jesus... Yeah, I did read it. Uh, no, I didn't. <laughs> it's 35. Okay, I'm going to... Let me read verse 35. And Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple... How say you the scribes that Christ is... You know what? Hold on. I'm going to read it from Matthew because that's where I studied it. That's why I got there yet. Just hold on. He asked the most eternally loaded question of all time. And here's his question. We'll look at it in Matthew because I like the way he words it better over there. He says, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? Now notice that he didn't ask his question directly about himself as he had done when he asked his own disciples. Back in Matthew 16, remember, he had asked his disciples, whom say ye that I am? He was speaking directly about himself to those who loved him. And Peter spoke up and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the, the, the son of the the living God. <laughs> but um, here to his foes, he doesn't say, what think ye of me? You know, he says, the Christ. He's making it an indirect question so that they can't pick up stones and stone him to death because it isn't yet his hour to die. He's getting close, but it's not yet his time. And then, um, of course, they, they give him an answer, but basically he goes on to answer his own question. And he makes it sound like another theological question, which indeed it is, but it was also the most pertinent personal question any one of them could ever face. He wanted the Pharisees, and in particular, he wanted this lawyer to focus on what they believed about the identity of the Messiah. Now, we're talking about scribes and Pharisees. They were all looking for the Messiah. The Sadducees weren't, but the scribes and Pharisees were. So he wants them to think about the Messiah. And notice how specific his question is when he says, whose son is he? And I thought, you know, that would be a good way for us when we witness. We go out and we don't say, you know, what do you think of Jesus or something like that. Instead say, what do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? Because, see, that's the crux of the whole matter. Is he just the son of David? Is he just a descendant of David? Is he just a man? Or is he also the son of God? And somebody's answer to that question will really tell you where they're coming from, won't it? So let's look at, first of all, the answer he gets from the scribe, and uh, then we'll look at the answer that, or the Pharisees, and then we'll look at the Lord's answer. And for this, I do want you, are you in Mark? I've gotten so confused. You're in Matthew? Well, I'm not. So let's, I want to read to you the answer in Matthew. Matthew 22, verses 41 to 46. Okay, while the Pharisees were gathered together, see, I told you they had another little huddle session, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Now, in the Greek, it's actually literally the Christ, to Christu. I don't know why they didn't put the word the in here, but what think ye of the Christ, whose son is he? And they say unto him, the son of David. I thought, this is ridiculous. We've asked him difficult questions. Why is he asking us such a simple one? Of course, everybody knows he's the son of David. And he saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? 
I won't stop right there. This is so profound. I know you probably have to go over time, but uh, you've got to, you've got to get this because this is so magnificent. To the Pharisees, the Lord's initial question was just too obvious and too simple. So, you know, as the trained experts of the scripture, they immediately knew the answer to who do you say the Christ is, whose son is he? They said he's the son of David because Old Testament scripture is full of passages which clearly say that the Messiah would come from the line of David. And it would be obvious that this would be the first thing that they ever checked out about Jesus. You know, when Jesus arrived on the scene and people were saying, here's the Messiah, the Lamb of God, as, as John the Baptist. Don't you know they all ran to the temple to check out his genealogy to make sure he came from the line of David? Because if he wasn't a descendant of David, that would have been the end of it, right? But what do you think they found in the temple records? We know what they found because they never mentioned this. They didn't go down this road. <laughs> they knew they were in trouble if they talked about the fact that Jesus didn't descend from David because he descended from his royal throne line and his royal bloodline through his stepfather Joseph and his mother Mary. So they never brought that subject up because he was, in the truest physical sense, he was a son of David. But he was also, in the spiritual sense, the son of David, the Messiah. But if he was the long-awaited Messiah, why did he keep calling God his father and making himself equal to God? Remember John 10.30 where he said the father and I are one? Why was he always doing that? He's just supposed to be a descendant of David. Why does he make himself equal to, to God? Because we all know the Shema. The Lord our God is one Lord. To worship Jesus as God would be idolatry or at least the Jews would think so and if there's one thing they learned in their Babylonian captivity it was to put away their idols they never again turned to idols and so you know when Jesus comes along and says that he's the Messiah and then he starts talking about his co-equality with God the Father they say this cannot be he's blaspheming the Lord our God is one Lord now, yes, they had to admit there were passages in the Old Testament scriptures which really confused them, such as the one in Micah 5.2 that said the ruler of Israel would be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. So they said, oh, okay, we can understand that. He's a man. He's going to be born. That's where he's going to be born. But this same one is of old from everlasting. Ooh, you know where that takes you? If he's born in Bethlehem and yet he's from of old, from everlasting, that takes you into eternity past. How can that be? And then there's passages, one, for example, is Ezekiel 37, 25. There's many, but this one says that the Messiah would be Israel's prince for how long? Forever. The Messiah would sit on the throne of David forever. So where does that take you? Into eternity future. Now, mm, there's only one who is in existence from eternity past into eternity future, and who is that? God. So how can these passages be talking about the Messiah and also say he's the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, <laughs> everlasting past to everlasting future? It was confusing to the Jews and, and uh, because they had the Shema. The Lord our God is one Lord. So you can see their perplexity here. Why they're, why they're, and so what they decided is this, the Messiah, the son of David, Cannot possibly be God. We don't know what to do with these other scripture, but he's just going to be a man. He's going to be a great man. He's going to be a descendant of King David. He's going to be one like under the prophet Moses, a deliverer, but he's still going to just be a man because God is one Lord. 
You know what part of their problem was and still is? That they were so afraid of idolatry that they refused to deeply consider the Hebrew word that is used for one in the Shema. And that's why it's so important, every little word. Now, the Hebrew language has more than one word for one, but the one word that is used for one in the Shema is the word echad, E-C-H-A-D. See, when you come to Bible study, you learn a lot of languages, don't you? (laughs) Echad is a very important word. It is the same word that is used for one in Genesis 2.24 when it says that a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife and the two shall be echad flesh how many people have we got in a marriage don't forget that woman with the seven husbands all right two (laughs) but the two are echad it's the same hebrew word that's used when it talks about the israelites going into the milk of the land of milk and honey and they got the giant grapes and they're carrying the grapes and it says echad grapes. <laughs> it's speaking of one bunch of grapes. But how many individual grapes are on that bunch? Lots, right? So it's, it's a, a oneness that's a oneness in diversity, which is exactly what we have in our God. He's one God, but he consists of three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And that is the word that is used in the Shema. The Lord our God is... Echad, God. One God, but three persons. Now, although this, the title, Son of David, <clears throat> which is with the answer that they gave to Jesus when he said, what, you know, whose son is he? That was a correct answer <clears throat> given by the Pharisees. But it was far too limited, wasn't it? Far too limited to be just the Son of David. And Jesus was now going to go on to give them one of the greatest claims to his deity that we have in all the scripture. This, this should be circled in your Bibles. This is an important claim to deity right here. And he would do so by using scripture, doesn't he always? And he quoted from, and here's where I want you to turn again to another passage. Would everybody turn to Psalm 110? 110. He quotes from Psalm 110, which every Jew understood, recognized, agreed that this was a psalm that spoke of the coming Messiah. Okay, they all agreed that it was messianic in its implications. This is a verse written by David, and Jesus said that David wrote this um, psalm under divine inspiration. Did you notice that? He said in the Spirit. And in Mark, I didn't take you there, but when you, in your homework, read what he says in Mark, he says that David wrote it, by the Holy Ghost. So he is saying this is divinely inspired. David wrote it. And again, isn't this what we found last week when he talked about Moses and that it was also God? God wrote this book through human pens. But that's important because I'm going to tell you in a minute, the liberals today deny that David wrote this psalm. They have a problem with it because it definitely shows the deity of Christ. So the liberals try to say David never wrote this. All right. Anyway, Jesus said that David wrote it. He also said that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And uh, uh, Jesus asked, in effect, if, if um, the Christ is merely the son of David, as you guys have just told me, 
then how is it that David himself, under divine inspiration, wrote the words in the psalm, which you all know and agree and recognize, speaks of the coming Messiah, who I'm claiming to be. The Lord said unto my Lord, you see that Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? This is one of the most momentous lessons Jesus ever taught. And the Pharisees were dumbfounded when he asked the punch question. How could David call his own son Lord? How could he call his own son Lord? Now, what we need to do is break this verse down um, to show you what it actually literally says in Hebrew. Because when we see it, we only see one word for Lord. Lord, Lord, two Lords. But in the Hebrew, the first Lord, you notice in your Bibles, it's written all in capital letters. So that speaks of... um, the name for God, which is Jehovah. Whenever you see Lord written in all capitals in your Bible, that's the word Jehovah, Yahweh, the holy name for God that the Jews won't even pronounce or write. And the second Lord is not in capital letters, but it is another name for God and God alone, and it's the name Adonai. So literally what David wrote is this, and he's inspired to write it. Yahweh said unto my Adonai, sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. Definitely David was speaking here of two lords, right? One Lord speaking to the other Lord. Yahweh speaking to Adonai. Both are names for God and God alone. And the Jews all accepted that David was referring to the Messiah as the second Lord, the one he called my Lord. They said that this was a messianic psalm, and David was calling the coming Messiah my Lord. Uh, To no one else either would God say, sit thou at my right hand, because that was a place recognized by the Jews to be a designation of co-equal rank and authority. It signified participation in the royal dignity and power, like a son ruling with his father. God would not just invite a man to sit for eternity at his right hand, because the word sit is given in the continuous tense. So when he invites him to sit at his right hand, it's forever. And also, he's going to be invincible because where are his enemies put? In eternal subjugation, you know, at his feet, making his enemies his footstool. So this can't just be a man. And besides, David wouldn't refer to a man if it was Solomon or one of his other sons, descendant. He would never refer to a man as Adonai, my Adonai. So in asking his startling question... If David then call him Adonai, how is he his son? In asking that question, Jesus wasn't asking anything new. He wasn't asking something that the Jews couldn't have figured out for themselves if they truly accepted the scriptures for exactly what they say. But unfortunately, 
the religious elite of Judaism had not, not seen such obvious truths because, like so many people today, they either spiritualized those passages that they didn't want to take literally or they ignored them like they ignore Isaiah chapter 53 to this day. If you ask a Jewish person, what do you think of Isaiah chapter 53? They'll look at you blankly and say, I, I don't know because that is not read in the synagogues. They skip it. Or if they do teach it, they reinterpret it to mean something else. But if, when you read Isaiah 53, Jesus is all over it. Or they, you know, as I said, they, they, uh, they misteach the passages to mean something else. But interestingly, they did believe in the inspiration of the scripture. So they did not do what many liberals do today, which is to deny that David wrote Psalm 110. And if you don't believe me, I've got commentaries at home to prove it. Liberals will teach that David did not write this psalm. Um, which would be, if you think it through, would be calling Jesus a liar, right? Because Jesus said David wrote it under divine inspiration. So how can you be a liberal Christian, unquote, unquote, and call Jesus a liar? Doesn't make sense. But they say David couldn't possibly have written it because they know the obvious. It makes the Messiah God, Adonai. And they don't want to admit that. Many liberals don't want to admit that. Um, and also they have a problem with verse 4. They have a problem with verse 4. Look at verse 4. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. They know this is messianic. And they say, you know, well, how can the one who's sitting at God's right hand like a king also be a priest after the order of Melchizedek? Because everybody in the Old Testament knew that one man could not be both a king and a priest, right? So they say, David didn't write this. David would never have written this. And so they give it to some other man, and they say, another guy wrote it. And when he said, the Lord said unto my Lord, he was speaking about Yahweh speaking to David. Which doesn't make sense, because why would you call David Adonai? It's just as blasphemous. And then others try to put it, push it up a thousand years and say that it was written later in time and just all kinds of rid ridiculous things. If the Messiah is merely the son of David a descendant of David, then why would David be inspired by the Holy Spirit? And by the way, this teaches the Trinity. We have the Holy Spirit in here too. God the Father, Yahweh speaking to Adonai, God the Son, and, and it's all inspired by God the Holy Spirit. There you go, your Trinity. Um, so why would David be inspired by God the Holy Spirit to call his own son Adonai? The Messiah had to, had to be infinitely more than David's bloodline physical son. He had to be the very son of God who would be invited by Yahweh himself to occupy the most illustrious seat in all of eternity. And isn't that when it's all said and done and, and God's redemptive plan is all over and Jesus will say it is finished at the cross. Where does God invite him to sit? At his right hand. And what will he do one day? Put all of his enemies at his feet. Jesus was using the Old Testament to, to point out to the Pharisees, and in particular this lawyer, and I do hope he got it. I do hope he was an intelligent guy, and I hope he got it. And I want to trust that he did. I do know the apostles got it. Now remember, they're there. I know they got it. 
because they use this teaching uh, many, many times in the Old Testament, New Testament, in the epistles, and uh, they got it. Peter even used it when he preached on the day of Pentecost. He used this, you know, Psalm 110. So I know they got it. But Jesus was using the Old Testament to point out to the Pharisees the deity of the Christ. Through his implication, Jesus was in effect saying to them, Yes, I know I have made claims to deity. I have called God my Father, and I have said that the Father and I are one. But I have not been making any claims about my Messiahship that you should not have expected the true Messiah to make. Because they're taught in your very own scripture. And let's look at their reaction and then we're closing. I promise you. Matthew twenty two forty six. Matthew 20. If you don't want to turn there, I'll just read it to you. I love this. After he said that, here's the reaction. And no man was able to answer him a word. Neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions who won the debate do you put your mind up against the mind of christ Mm -mm -mm, you will never succeed the best thing to do is just submit and trust him and believe him and receive him